This is the Douglas Robin Show. Good morning. Welcome to Douglas Robin's Den of Discussion. Today I have the privilege of speaking with author and TEDx speaker, Christian Della Huerta. Good morning, Christian. How are you? Hey, uh, good morning, Douglas. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the show. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. And I've really enjoyed this book. The, the name of Christian's book is Awakening the Soul of Power, How to Live Heroically and Set Yourself Free. And there's a quote from Gloria Estefan at the top, a balm for the soul of anyone searching for truth and answers to life's difficult questions. And there are many difficult questions. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's so, for sure. Yeah. And we, we, you know, that's the thing. We're always trying to navigate the questions and sort of that internal dialogue while navigating the external world. And that's where um, we obviously come up against things that, that set us off or, or trigger us, things that we've been holding on to for years. But before we get into that, or maybe even at the, the basis of all this is, is, I find it so fascinating that you grew up in Cuba just prior to Castro's taking over. Can you, you know, kind of maybe speak to that a little bit? And, and you had mentioned a few of the, the issues that had happened. You became ostracized. I think you'd even mentioned your father had to hide food or something like that in the back. Or um, could you maybe just speak to your upbringing and maybe how that, that formed you a bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I was, I was, I'm a child of the revolution. I was in my mother's womb when the revolution happened um so you know sometimes i say that i carry a revolution in my blood it's just manifesting in my life more of a spiritual revolution i'm more of an advocate of that than of a violent one um and you know it's kind of ironic that i'm writing about personal empowerment because as you know that is sort of a ludicrous and ridiculous conversation to have in a communist totalitarian di dictatorship um, where there is no such thing as personal power, like the state owns you and tells you what you're going to do with your life and what you can and cannot do and, and all of it. And I was also raised in a, in a very Catholic family. I'm one of nine kids. And with all due respect to that and to any religious traditions, it's, it's a very hierarchical uh, power over structure in which one is told, you know, what to believe and what not to believe, what's right and what's wrong and um, the individual has very little power. Um, and, and so you're like, what, you, what you're talking about is like, it was, I'm really grateful actually for having been raised in a communist country for the first 10 years of my life. We just tend to take so many things for granted here in, in, in the free countries in the democratic environments. Um, and for that, I'm really grateful. Like, for, so, you know, we had a TV, there was nothing worth watching. So we grew up reading. And I developed a lifelong love affair with words and with books. And that's what made it easier for me to, to learn when I, when I came to the States without speaking a word of English, because at least I knew how to, how to educate myself and how to, how to, how to make it through, you know, through, through that kind of a process. Um, the story that you're talking about was, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to believe and it's up now. You know, where, where it seems that the Cuban people have finally hit a point of, of having had enough of no liberties and no freedom. Um, 
And, you know, and it's hard for us to conceive here in the States, but in every street block, um, they have what's called a, a defense committee, Comité de Defensa. They're basically in the pocket of, they're, they're like a stool pigeon. They, they work for the government and they keep a, an eye on who's coming and who's going. And the story you're talking about is that there was, there was a time where my parents had bought, you know, meat from, from a farmer black market. Um, and soon as soon as, so suddenly the, you know, the, the, the state police, they obviously got told on. And so the state police was knocking on the doors. And as my mom was kind of stalling, um, my, my father was in the back of the yard, um, just throwing, you know, the pounds and pounds of me, like half a cow, basically over the fence to the neighbors. And of course we never got that back. Um, but, but, you know, so many, just, just like the, the things that we take for granted, I mean, the, like what's chewing gum for us here in the, in, in the U S we stick a piece of gum in our mouth and we chew it and we throw it up without even thinking about it. We had it better than most because my parents had friends who worked for foreign embassies. So they were able to get a few things that most people weren't able to have access to. So once in a while, we used to get a pack of chiclets, you know, the old little chiclets sure. and divide them between the kids. And at the end of the day, we get a, a glass of water, you know, with just like a couple of inches of water, maybe, and, and then add toothpaste and stir it up and then throw our gum in there and and so that it'd be minty the next day and then hide it so my mom wouldn't throw it out. Um, so, you know, that's just a little example of what, it, what it's like and, and how we take little things for granted, not to mention the big ones, you know, like all the rights and the liberties that, that are granted to us here. Yeah, you know, I wish um, my child, you know, we obviously try to teach her right from wrong and be respectful and appreciate what she's given because she has a great life, but she has no, no comparison. So she only knows all of these wonderful things that are basically handed to her on a daily basis. And, um, you know, that sort of entitlement uh, and we try to keep her humble, if you will, and give her responsibilities but again, she has no comparison to That's wanting. Right. So she no, she doesn't know wanting or, or that struggle. And sometimes I feel like it's probably not that beneficial to her and might be better for her if we gave her more tasks to understand, because it's very easy, for, especially for a child to just point the finger as, as she develops that judgment and judgment and, you know, because she, in a sense, doesn't have any skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. You know, traveling helps, like, like, and taking them to to, to places where they'll, they're they, where they where the kids see that not everybody lives lives like we do in this country. Yeah, um, and and even in this country, there's many many places and pockets where people are surviving. Sure. Um, at at the physical level, and a lot of kids who go hungry every night. So. So I think if you, I think if if as parents we can balance that, you know, so that we don't feel guilty about giving them the things that maybe we weren't able to have as kids, yeah. Um, but balancing it so they have, so that they don't take it for granted, so that they don't become entitled, and so that they really appreciate the little things. 
you know, when I was a child, my parents, you know, if I didn't finish my food or something like that, my parents would always say, oh, you know, kids in Africa are starving. Um, and in an intellectual way, it doesn't really, you know, oh, that's, that's too bad, you know, when you hear that. And, but when you go see it is when you feel it. That's when it has the impact on us, not, not so much the intellectual musings of it. There was something Tony Robbins did with his children. He brought, they, he brought them to like the worst uh, part of town into like a homeless shelter or it was like a crack house or something and showed them like this, this is what a lot of people are, are living and really was teaching him, you know, the differences uh, and compassion that it's very easy to not be compassionate when you may be spoiled and pampered. Yeah. Yeah. But that that sounds like a great practice to, to, to do with kids. I don't have kids myself. Um, I'm a great uncle, but, but, but yeah, anything along those lines that will help the kids have gratitude and appreciation to value the little things and, and to not grow up, you know, selfish and self-centered and entitled. We are really doing a big service to them. And that's why it is great. As you had mentioned to bring, children to and people just to other cultures to see how people are living and be exposed to this much greater world um you know we we live in a small town and often you think that's the world well that's obviously a a very small fraction of it yeah so christian i'd like to dive into your book now and again it was a great read and really i think people are are hungry i think they're desperate i think they're starving for change Um, the whole design of the system, whether it was intentionally to keep people small, uh, or it was more of an ignorance, um, with work taking over everyone's life with consumerism, you know, what did George Bush say after nine 11, you know, buy more crap, um, (laughs) right, go shop. And I, and I lived in, in New York city during that period. and, And it was so, to me, so offensive, um, basically forget humanity because humanity, it was a, a horrible event, but humanity won the day. It was so powerful to be yes. there and seeing strangers. And you, you mentioned, you know, um, I think tsunamis and compassion takes over. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. incredible that humanity becomes uh, second fiddle to consumerism. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you're right, that's the kind of thing that, that we are longing for, which is that, that sense of deep connection. Um, and, and you're right, you know, I don't know if that was by design, my, I think to some degree it had to be, uh, to keep people disempowered and to have just a, a few people holding the majority of the power in the world and the majority of the resources. Um, I don't think that was accidental. And I think a lot of the way the system is set up, it's still designed to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you're right. I think that, that we've had enough. I think that we've had enough um, and, and that we're longing for something else, we're longing for a, for a different way of being, including our relationship to power. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, it's just fascinating to me how many people I speak with are just exhausted oh, my plate is full. And I make a joke recently, maybe we need to stop using the term plate and say platter or table because there just seems to be more and more and more piled on it. Um, 
and I think many people just feel like they're workarounds, powerless, uh, because they're trapped in this consumer work to buy, work to buy, stay alive uh, culture. Yeah, well, I mean, when we think about that, half of humanity is just barely surviving at less than two dollars right. a day. That, I mean, that's wide eye-opening. And then when we think about those of us who who are fortunate and blessed enough to live in, in developed and developing countries that 99% of us are just barely making ends meet and caught caught up in this rat race yeah. and that hamster wheel of just, you know, getting up, going to work and exhausting ourselves and falling asleep, exhausted and getting up the next day and doing it all over again, just to barely make ends meet. It's like something's got to change. Yeah. And it's, it really is a very strange idea, you know, the, the dollars for hours, but really hours are your life. And, you know, many people get two weeks of PTO a year, three weeks of PTO a year, you're buying back this little snippet of your life and, and of well-being. And uh, I had a, a friend recently tell me that, you know, he, this guy hasn't had a vacation in years. And he told me he took a two-week vacation. And he shut the phone off for nine days. And he said, Doug, it, it was transformational for me to not be bombarded. And I was, it was simple and it was quiet. And it was almost like the guy had tears in his eyes being reconnected with himself. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're longing for. And, um, you know, and what's tragic, too, is how cheaply we sell ourselves for that illusion of security of a biweekly paycheck. Because if you're telling me, well, I'm making, you know, 500, three quarters of a million dollars, you know, 500,000 a year, then we can talk about selling ourselves. But, but most of us are selling ourselves really, really cheaply for way less than that. And, and for an illusion of security, because that's one thing that we've learned from, from the pandemic is that these companies that we sell are, are magnificent too, and all of our human potential too, and all of our time and our mental real estate too. They're here today, gone tomorrow, um, and 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 we and an illusion of security because the entire global economic system is made up. Like we used to say that it was paper, it's not even that. It's just ones and zeros up on a cloud somewhere, yeah. and that's what we're going to sell our security to. That's what we're going to place our trust on. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, so. I love the chat. The, um, so I'm going to dive into your book a little bit here. Chapter one, I love the title, We Are the Help, uh, because we're always looking to others, to some leader. And most of the leaders are out for their own self-interest. But um, so you have an Einstein quote here at the bottom of uh, the start of that chapter. A problem cannot be solved from the same level of consciousness in which it was created. Yeah. And, and, and that's what you know i think i'm paraphrasing him and i don't know that he said it exactly in those words but pretty close um and and that's what drives pretty much everything i do you know when i think it, when i look at the world and i look all the challenges that we're facing um you know the environmental stuff that we're just now beginning to witness whatever it is that we have unleashed on, on our environment you know, terrorism war hunger like sometimes it feels you know, so overwhelming that I just think, you know what, I'm just going to go to the beach, have a lot of sex, eat a lot of dark chocolate. And, and then I like pull myself back, I reel myself back. And I said, all right, dude, chill out. What can I do? And, and the answer I always land on is the same. Like, I can continue 
to wake myself up and I continue to help as many people to do the same. And when I, when I look at all these problems, it's, that's what, that, what connects it to, to what Einstein said, that I don't think, I think to get, to dig ourselves out of this hole that we have dug ourselves into collectively, we've got to think outside of the box and we've got to, it's gotta be, to me, it's nothing less than, than a, like a spiritual revolution, a, a leap in consciousness that, that shifts, that has to shift the way that we deal with ourselves, right? Which I think is what, what, your, what your friend was in tears because in, the, in that time off, his relationship to himself deepened and it shifted. And, and that in turn shifts how we relate to each other and, and that longing for connection with each other. Um, and, and then it would also shift the, our connection and, and our relationship to the planet. And, and, and it all st stems from like how we see ourselves um, and our role and what, what we're doing here. Um, and it's, it's all hands on deck. You know, we, we don't have the time that we thought we had. Um, so anybody who, who might be listening to this who has the slightest inkling or the slightest suspicion that they have work to do supporting that awakening or supporting that leap in consciousness as teachers, as healers, as activists for change, whatever it is, like this is it, all hands on deck. I agree. And with the environment, you know, other things going on, I just turned 50 and, and that finite sense lurks you know when you're younger you feel like oh yeah forever that you know the soul is infinite but the body is not infinite your time here on earth is not infinite and then obviously how we're treating the environment uh you know my joke is well the dinosaurs didn't even do anything wrong and they were extinct <laughs> it's um, true yeah. you know i want to ask you we'll, we'll jump around a little bit but you know the ego it's something that plagues everyone and it's it's this counter voice in your head if you will um it's the thing that's constantly attacking us and belittling us and shaming us and it's a very strange element because well it's like well shisha aren't you me i mean you're supposed to you know ideally it's protecting us or, or for mm -hmm. survival and all that but you know those those it's, it's no longer, it's, it's harming us, especially if we have negative self-image, you know, or, or, or we're, we're traumatized, you know, it's so hard to shake those skins. And as you put in the book, you know, you play small, you know, it's like a baseball in, in the size of a stadium. And the only thing we pay attention to is the baseball when there's this broader, greater self that it's almost like people live, um, uh, separate identities, right? You have that identity yes. that feels like, oh, I should be doing something more, more with my life, but then the ego kind of stops you in your tracks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a huge conversation. It's, it's like I spend the, probably the first quarter of the book explaining what the ego is because there's so much confusion about it. Um, and it is so critically important that we get it, that we understand it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my dad was a psychiatrist. I, I went to my majored in psychology at call in college and i never got the understanding of the ego that i that i put forth in this book um which changed my life and it, it's derived from eastern teachings um and yeah so yeah that metaphor that you that you speak about where you you put a baseball in the center of the stadium that's what the ego is it's it's, it's, a, it's a small part of our minds of our psyches 
who we are is actually the stadium. So it's, it's a confusion and identification. We thought we were the baseball, we're the freaking stadium. Right. And, and we've allowed this tiny, tiny, tiny part of who we are to think that it is all who we are. And, and to make really important, consequential choices about our lives, about our relationships from its very small, limited, and always fear-based perspective. Right. So always if we want to be free, We've got to, we got to figure this out. We got to understand what the ego is and how to let ourselves out of its self-made prison. Yeah. And it's such a shame because so much beautiful time is squandered. So many beautiful potential relationships or opportunities are squandered because we're not being vulnerable, uh, you know, and that's a big thing, you know, Brene Brown. And that's the only way to be courageous is being vulnerable. It's the only Mm -hmm. way to say, to someone, I love you, or hey, we should go out, or whatever it might be. But how often are we pulling back, saying, uh, in a sense, I'm afraid of love. Let me stay in the hurt and the pain. But the the irony is, all you are is in pain. Then, yeah, yeah, it's it's that's true. It's it's uh, the ego strategies are not effective uh, because often we end up with the very same thing that is trying to protect us from. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and so it's, it's pretty kind of rudimentary. It's, it's a strategy. So, you know, we got hurt as kids or our parents got divorced or, or whatever. So we have developed this negative beliefs about ourselves or about relationships. And so subconsciously, the ego says, nope, no way. I'm not doing that again. I am not going that direction. And but in, in developing these protective mechanisms that are mostly subconscious, that have us sabotaging our relationships before we even get started by attracting the wrong people, by, by falling for people who are not available, who are not a match. Um, you know, we end up ensuring the very same thing that we're trying to avoid, that the relationship is not going to work out and, and, and that we're going to end up alone. So it's, it's not a very effective strategist, the ego. And in, and in some ways we're still, um, living from subconscious patterns that we developed um, in childhood. So a lot of these beliefs that you're talking about, you know, these negative self-talk, the self-doubt, the self-hatred, um, you know, that many of us experienced growing up, it's like they're just misunderstandings yeah. from young minds that didn't know any better. And, and, and I know self-doubt. Like my entire adolescence was one long depression with suicidal fantasies. Um, so I even know health, self-hatred and the, 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 the power of that is like, I know how to break free from it uh, because these days, you know, flash forward to today and no matter what happens in my life, no matter the details, the circumstances, whether a relationship works out or it doesn't, a project succeeds or it fails in quotes, um, no matter what happens, I never, ever, ever question my, my sense of worth. My, my level of self-acceptance, my, my self-love is profound and established and, and unshakable. And so that's the, that process I share in the book of, of how to get to that place, how to transform, how to morph that self-doubt into self-love and self-empowerment. Um, and it begins by understanding the ego mind. And this is a slippery one, that ego mind, because you think you maybe have a beat on or a seat and it's, it's, you know, quite uh, ubiquitous um, throughout our thoughts. And that's often where we have gained our 
current identity because, okay, we had all those hurts in childhood and the brain looks for proof of the hurt and, and um, reinforces it. Okay, yep, you're no good because of X, Y, Z. And this is how you go into adulthood. Yeah. Um, but it's so fascinating because, for instance, uh, I used to study a lot of Zen and, and Taoist teachings and meditation and, and uh, was doing martial arts, you know, religiously every day. Um, and doing a lot of breath work. And it was the first time in my life that I felt free from the ego because I wasn't in the mind. Yes. Uh, I was in the body. I was in the heart. I was in the spirit. And so often, especially in our society, because there's endless minutia we're trying to constantly deal with. Well, that needs the brain, right? The, 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 the interpretive discerning brain. And that's, I think, where a lot of us disconnect from that that broader spiritual self. Yeah, and 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 you're right. It's practices like the one you're talking about, mindfulness, meditation, breath work, that give us a sense, that give us a glimpse, an experience of the stadium, and we all have access to that, right? So it's just a matter of like disidentifying with the baseball and re-identifying with the stadium. But in order to be able to, to do that, we've got to start by understanding how the, state, how the baseball is. Because it, you're right, it's absolutely insidious and very tricky. Um, so really important. Like I, the, at every retreat that I do, no matter what the theme is, we start with the ego. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's just very curious when we step back from it, you know, the, the, the self that's back there. Uh, and when we step away from the brain, kind of, you know, just endless chattering and we observe it, that's when we can start obviously changing it and, and healing and seeing or being reminded that there is a stadium because when we're just stuck in this, you know, pain all we see is that baseball because that's all we're seeing. It's like the tiger at the door. Well, you have to look at the tiger. You can't take your eyes off of it. But if you step back and go, okay, it's not really a tiger there. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and it all begins with, with self-awareness. Like we can't do anything about what we can't see. So that's why that's the first step. And so understanding how the mind works um, the self-inflicted mind F, that the numbers that we do to ourselves, the, the self-made prison, um, all the shenanigans of the ego is, is defensiveness, it's reactivity, it's being stuck in victimization, it's, it's feeble attempts to, to control everyone and everything around it, um, it's being stuck in the past, um, you know, it's judgments, it's, it's self-righteousness, um, all the qualities of the ego that that are first are difficult to see, like in ourselves. But the advantage of, or, or one advantage is that once we understand that this is all the realm of the ego, it's like that is liberating. It's like when, so when we find ourselves doing these these behaviors that that we don't we never feel good about, you know, because we go in, <clears throat> we go in from that cycle of reacting and saying something that we then regret um, because we were just out of control and that our ego got hurt. So somebody press one of our buttons, then we immediately react and find one of theirs and press it back. But that might feel good in the moment, but it doesn't feel good in the long term because as soon as that, 
adrenaline dissipates, then we start doing the number of, on ourselves. So the ego turns inward and we start the, the self-punishment. Oh my God, I can't believe I said that to them. That was so mean. That was so cruel. I'm such a bad person, blah, 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 blah. And it continues. And, and, and it's just a prison inside of our minds. So, but, but you're right with, with self-awareness, with mindfulness techniques, we begin to understand how it works so that we no longer give all of our power away to it. You know, I've done that a lot, especially with my daughter, because, you know, kids and family are the ones who hit your buttons the most. Um, yeah, yeah, say something sure. snide or, or disrespectful or, and yeah, so I'll do that, react, I'll, I'll, I try not to, but I've gotten better, I think, in recent years, but blow up and then immediately feel bad. And, but course. I feel justified in the blowing up. And then 30 seconds later, once I can think clearly again, yeah. Uh, why the hell did I say that? I know. And then that lasts longer. The self-punishment part lasts longer. <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's move on a little bit. So as I had mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people are, are, are struggling with that sense of powerlessness, whereas they want to be, but there's a deeper, broader, you know, more divine self, obviously. Um, and, you know, this, your book is really about a call to action, a hero's journey. Yes. That we're all heroes and we all have to be leaders as well. Um, and obviously clearing the ego and, and being aware of its little tricks, you know, we have to be uh, cognizant of. What would you give, you know, a, a few little tidbits uh, for people to, to find that power? And it's not some immense thing of necessarily moving a mountain. Sometimes it's a little just a uh, kind gesture to someone. Um, but this is where we're all responsible for the collective. Um, and, you know, we can't turn a blind eye. So often people say, well, it's not my responsibility. I didn't do it. Okay, that might be true directly, but you can be part of the solution. Yes. Um, and keeping yourself boxed in isn't that. So what would you say in on a day-to-day? -day, because you know, I think the other thing a lot of Americans struggle with is isolation, loneliness, yeah. because we are not our system is not built for the community, it's built for the the winner takes all type of thing. Uh, and I think there's a lot of disconnection, whereas in a lot of other countries and indigenous tribes, community is rules and everyone is much happier. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the whole thing about the extended family that other cultures are do much better than we do here uh, makes all the difference. And a couple of years ago, they, they did a study um, where they were studying what's at the root of addictions. And what they found is, is a longing for connection. Um, and, and, and this totally has to do with the ego because the ego is that part of us that, that is that has that individual identity, that sense of personality, like this is Christian over here. That's Douglas over there. Yeah. Ultimately it's an illusion and it's yeah. both a helpful illusion and the source of all our suffering. And it's part of the reason that we feel so separate and alone. Um, and so, so, so yeah, go, like, what do we do on a day-to-day -day basis? Become self-aware, understand how the mind works so that you can let yourself free from it. And then also understand 
deepen your understanding about power. Because what I've realized is that most of us have an ambivalent, conflicted relationship to power. Like part of us wants it, part of us is afraid of it. And I think what we fear, the more that I work with people in retreats and around these teachings, I think we fear that if we really stepped into our power, like if we really fulfilled our, our potential to the max, that other people wouldn't be able to handle it and that we might get rejected and end up alone. Um, and who wants that? We also fear that we might abuse it. Like if we really understood our power that we might abuse it and cause harm. And no wonder, all, all we got to do is turn on the news on any given day to witness at least one abuse of power. And then add to that the fact that we've been conditioned to believe that power is a bad thing, that power is negative, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. What they didn't tell us about that quote, though, is that Lord Acton was speaking specifically about political power, not personal power, which is what we're talking about here. And so when we add to that mix, the fact that we've been conditioned also to think of the emotions as weakness, when the emotions aren't strength, they're not weakness, they're not good, they're not bad, they're just energies, like everything else. Um, and But somewhere along the way, we gave them the meaning of, of weakness, especially men, you know, we've been conditioned into us, little boys don't cry. Um, and, and so when you put all that together, what happens is that we end up giving our power away tragically, our innate, our, our inherent power that no one can give to us. No one can take away. We are the only ones who can give it away. And the tragic part of it, the sad part is that we give it away for all sorts of lame reasons. We play less. We settle for less. Um, I mean, we play small. We settle for less. We, we hide our light um, under a bushel, so to speak. Uh, and, and we give our power away um, we say yes when inside we feel no. Um, and, and all for an illusion. We settle for an illusion of security. We settle for a false sense of acceptance. And we settle for morsels of pseudo-love. And what the book talks about is, is that there is a way that we can step into power that doesn't need to be corrupting, that we that doesn't need to be abusive, that it doesn't need to be about force and fear and control and domination and overpowering overs, you know, this hierarchical uh, power over system that requires that, that I push somebody down or step on them or put a knee to their neck in order to, to feel powerful. So, so the book talks about how do we do that in a different way? How do we step into power in a different way? Yeah, I think that's, and you, you certainly touch base uh, throughout the book uh, about that. And that personal power is integrity, is, in gra is grace, is the divine. Whereas sort of a selfish, destructive ego power, obviously, is... Um, People we had mentioned earlier, you know, the ones with the bombs and they don't mind sending in your, your kids or my kids in to fight, but they're not yes. <laughs> sending their own. Exactly. Um, so um, I, I want to speak a, to you a bit about institutions. Um, you mentioned in the book, um, I think the, the Southern Baptist uh, Church uh, that Jimmy Carter had left. And even just a few years ago, they were basically saying, women are basically here to take care of the man, whatever the man's needs, uh, and shut up about it. Uh, basically second-class citizens. And it's very strange for me that any woman 
would be unless she was brought up that way. And again, the ego and um, maybe taught to be small. Um, but it seems like so many of our institution, uh, institutions are obviously male dominant. Uh, I'm so glad that women are, are in droves getting into politics because we are absolutely desperate for that because clearly, clearly men aren't the best at it. So uh, maybe a balance would be helpful. The balance is good. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's so many institutions that are keeping us small. Uh, education, um, you know, all these things are teaching us these externals, right? If then. I had this, you know, get the 2.5 Ks, get the, you know, 401 K. And again, I'm not sure if it's a deliberate conspiracy or if it was simply more of the period that it was developed, that it came out of, but, you know, with the religion, you know, obviously religion doesn't have a hold on spirituality. And I think this is the first time in history in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, but especially now it's growing more and more of spirituality outside of religion of yes. people learning that our education system is providing information but not providing how to live or, or how to handle debt or how to handle economics things that are actually necessary in navigating uh, a healthy const uh, constructive life yeah i mean and i mean you said quite a lot there's a, a, some, some deep, <laughs> deep and broad thoughts in there um so let's go back to the thing about the balance between the, the masculine and the feminine energies in the world. The book is for everybody, but I, but I have a particular message in the book about, the, about women's empowerment. And that stems from my belief that the empowerment of women is like the single most important thing that needs to happen in the world. And it's yeah. not to idealize women, it's not to put women up on a pedestal. Women are also capable of abusing power, uh, but it's because we've been running so off kilter, so off balance, where it comes to, to the balance between the masculine and the feminine in, in the whole world and in, in, on the whole planet. And, and so I believe that when women are in 50% of power, that we'll have a very different relationship to, to all the things you and I've been talking about, to war and poverty and hunger and social justice and distribution of wealth and um, how we treat the environment to all of it. So for me, it's, it's a strategic thing. Like what is, when I think about what's one thing that if we focused on that would then impact a whole many others, that's what I land on, you know, the empowerment of women and without minimizing the, the unfairness and the unacceptability of this imbalance uh, the, the, the lack of equity between the men and women and the, the planet for the probably the last five, six thousand years that we've been in a patriarchal system. It's important for, for men to realize that men also pay a price for this, for this system of, you know, patriarchal, call it toxic masculinity, call it masculinity, call it whatever you want. Um, but let's look at so, a couple of numbers briefly. Uh, the rate of suicide in the U.S., is much higher among men. Men commit f f f suicide four times as frequently as women do. And in fact, 70% of the suicides in the US are committed by middle-aged white men, which still are the ones that hold the majority of power in the world. What's up with that? Um, and if we look at longevity 
Like women outlive men by five years in the US, by seven years when we look at the global numbers. So the system doesn't work for men either. And, and I think part of that is it connects to what you were talking about, vulnerability. Uh, we've gotten this twisted definition of what it means to be a man and also what it means to be a woman. But, but we've gotten this, this twisted, you know, limited way of, of how we define what a man is. Um, you know, and, and because of what we were talking about, the, this making this brilliant idea somebody had along, along the way of deciding that the emotions were, were weakness, um, you know, we, we walk around like these uncaring, unfeeling robots. Um, and, and there's a price to pay for that because what used to be spiritual teaching that everything is energy. Now we know from quantum physics that it's true. That means the bodies are energy, the vibration, our emotions are energy. We know energy cannot be destroyed. It can only change forms. So just because we suppress our emotions, because, because we, we don't want to be, you know, we, because we label them weakness doesn't mean they go away. Right, they, we, they get lodged and we push them down into the tissues of our, of our bodies and those energy blockages stay there and they get compounded. And after years and years and decades of suppressing emotions, we walk around with layers upon layers upon layers of repressed emotional crap, which we dump on each other's laps as we're trying to have a relationship. No wonder most relationships don't work out. Um, because we haven't been taught how to hold them, how to contextualize them, how to approach them. And, and because we're running all these subconscious patterns on each other and, and projecting on each other, our own unhealed stuff. Um, and so those energies have to come out one way or another. So what happens is, is either we suppress, we suppress, we suppress. And then, then the next unfortunate one just happens to say the wrong thing the wrong way. And boom, volcanic eruption. Um, disproportionate to what to that particular incident but it's because we've been suppressing so long we walk around like these, these raging volcanoes under the surface or and then we cause harm to our relationships or suppress 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 those energies have to come out one way or the other so they start seeping up and seeping out um, and showing up as bodily symptoms cancer heart attacks ulcers so, so we've got to get this. We've got to, to, to learn how to feel our emotions, how to communicate them courageously and also gracefully in a, in a way that they can be received, in a way that they can be heard, rather than just dumping them on each other like a two-year-old having a tantrum. Yeah. Uh, so owning that there are emotions and that nobody can make us feel anything, um, no matter what they do. And this is not about excusing or exonerating any, anybody's behavior. This is about owning responsibility for our emotional life. Um, and, um, and, and, and then also learning, like shifting our relationship to power so that we stop giving it away for all these sad reasons that we give it away. A lot, a lot of great points. And, and something you mentioned in the book that, out of all the mass shootings, all were perpetrated by men. Yeah. yeah. Which kind of gives me chills ju just saying it. But, um, you know, women, uh, a, I, I, I have a feeling, you know, men who have been in leadership, the church saying those things, political situations, uh, the issue with, 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 with pay not being equal. I think men are afraid, those, those men, are afraid of the power 
of women. And I think another reason they've done studies on this, that part of the reason women are, aren't as suicidal is because they are better at socialization. They typically have more friendships, more, more socialized experiences, whereas men often are brooding and alone <laughs> and isolated, which is, again, lacking that community yes. can, be, can be devastating and obviously have devastating consequences. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just a twisted system. Um, and, and it's just a sad misunderstanding of, of you know, what it means to be a, be a man. Um, and in such a limited way. So part of what I did in, in, in a, I threw in a chapter about what it means to be a man in the 21st century. And looking at some of the ways, you know, some of the traditional roles that may have, that men have fulfilled and kind of upgrading them for the 21st century. Like, like we need a software upgrade. Yes. Um, and so, for example, the provider, you know, like so many men are, are that's their identity, right? Um, and, and what's happening in the world and, and in this country as women are reclaiming their power rightfully, that, you know, that's shifting. I think in the U.S. we're approaching like 40% of heterosexual households in which the women are earning more than, than their men, than the spouse. And, and so... And more than, I think a few years ago, more than 50% of, gra- of college graduates are now women. So that's the, that's the trend. Yeah. And, and, and at the same time that, you know, men, men are being thrown into crisis because if I'm not the provider, then who am I? And, and not and complicating the issues more that, you know, how many jobs are being that men used to fulfill that are now being outsourced to, to, to other parts of the world where they can do it more cheaply or they're just being replaced by computers and machines. And so men are in a major crisis too. And, and so part of what, what I do is like, look at some of these roles and redefine them. Like, 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 let's look at the provider one. Are you, are you really going to tell me that that's, that you're going to define who you are as a man by the size of your paycheck? It's like, come on. All right. That's, that's such a limited um, and limiting way of looking at yourself. And there's many other ways that we can pro- that we can be providers. And so how about providing a, a safe space in your household for your family, for your loved ones to, to grow, to thrive, where, where they get to just explore who they are and, and maximize their potential? How, how about if you become that rock and you provide that rock, that steadiness, that unconditional support and love for everybody else to blossom. It's like, wow, that is priceless. That is priceless. There's no, there's like so much bigger than any paycheck could ever be. Yeah, the, the definitions are antiquated at best and uh, clearly they are changing and they need to. Uh, and too many people have, have suffered. And yeah, there's, there's much confusion, right? If, it's okay if the guy makes more money or, but it's not okay if he doesn't make as much money. And, you know, like, are we going to judge that instead of accept that with, you know, open arms? Yeah. So we we really are changing and it's good that we're changing these, these roles and definitions because they have been harming uh, all of us and keeping us once again imprisoned. (laughs) A lot of prisons out there. (laughs) <laughs> a majority of prisons out there. And the sad part is those self-made. Yeah. Um, 
self-made prisons and and yeah and that's part of why these times are, are confusing and why they're chaotic because everything's kind of up for grabs these these ways in which we have been and the, the relationship the power structures how we define what it means to be a man what it means to be a woman it's all up for grabs and it's all being expanded and redefined so no wonder that there's a certain percentage of people in this society and others that are looking backwards it's like whoa, 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 whoa slow down this is too much let's go back to the way that it was in the 50s um you know where they have this idealized version of what it, what it used to be like and when only a certain few certain group had all the benefits and all the privileges but you can't do that we can't go backwards as you can't put that cat back in the bag no i think too many people are are looking to leave it to beaver as a you know (laughs) a reality when it was not but so a couple other things and and then we'll conclude but um i love they have some victor frankel in here when when i had read his book it, it really blew me away when there were people who were so desperate, obviously, to get out that their hearts would break or that they would, would die of a heart attack if, if it didn't, well, they weren't liberated when they thought it was going to happen. But the people that were able to hold on mm-hmm. were the people that there was something they wanted to do or, or live for. But yeah. really, it was meaning. There yes. was a deep sense of meaning to their lives. No matter what was happening around them, they were holding on to that meaning. So that, that I think could lead into this zone of power because that's ultimately where our powers lie is in a, a meaningful life. Yeah, yeah. And you also just went for the jugular in, in terms of like what, what I think is the hardest um, thing we need to get clear about and let go of if we wanna, if we wanna step on this, into our own power. Um, and so, you know, for listeners who may not know may not know Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian psychiatrist um, who spent years in concentration camps, lost everybody. Everybody in his family was taken away, including his pregnant wife, soulmate kind of relationship. Lost everything, property, education, everything gone. Um, And so being a psychiatrist, he started observing why some people seemed to survive and others didn't. And the more he looked into it, had nothing to do with intelligence or education or physical strength, brawn, uh, had nothing to do with socioeconomic status beforehand or where you came from. It's like, in that sense, that uh, that experience was a great equalizer. And what he discovered is, as you, as you said, is that the people who seemed to survive had a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. So he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and, and I would feel really fortunate and blessed that I was able to hear him speak when I was in an um, AP psychology class in high school. Um, and, and so that guy was able to say, and here's the, here's the critical part, um, that that man was able to say that they could take everything away from him, except for one thing, the ability to choose how he would be in response. And that is a game changer, right? Because the, the, we're never going to figure out really, really, really get what it's like to be in a concentration camp. I don't care how many books, how many we read, how many movies we watch, because there's so many choice points and at any given day that we take for granted, right? Am I going to get up at seven or am I going to snooze for 20 minutes? Uh, am I going to have breakfast or am I going to skip it? And if I'm going to have it, am I going to have eggs or, or, or a smoothie or, or oatmeal? 
Am I going to wear my red shirt or my yellow one or my black one, right? All these little choice points that we take for granted, not to mention the big ones. Like, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to study? What am I going to, am I going to take that job opportunity? Am I, am I going to say yes and go on that coffee date? Um, right? Everything taken away from him. Everything except for that. And so, and so if he can do that, and it's not to minimize anybody's trauma, but if he can do that there in that setting, certainly we can do that in our lives. And that reframe is, changes everything because it's to, to, as long as we're holding someone or something responsible for our state of being, something outside of us, we just gave our power away, right? So, you know, so many of us get stuck in this poor me victim mentality, victim mindset. If only mom hadn't been this way or daddy had been, had been present. If, if only, you know, the teacher, if only the minister, if only the, the, the rabbi, if only, um, you know, the system was different. If only there wasn't sexism or racism or homophobia. If, if only I had been born, you know, to, to, with, to a rich family, if only, right. But, but et cetera, we can go on infinitely. Uh, with those if onlys. And as long as we're holding something or someone responsible for our state of being, we just gave our power away. And, and so, so here's, and, and this is the toughest one, right? This is the tough one, because it's not minimizing or denying or rationalizing or excusing what anybody did or failed to do. Um, and but if we want to step into our power, we've, we've got to, like, like one thing we can count on is that life is going to continue throwing curveballs our way, right? Things are going to happen that we didn't want to happen, that we didn't see coming. And that we can do nothing about. But no matter what happened in the past, no matter what happens going forward, we always get to choose how we show up in response. And at that level, we just popped ourselves out of that victim mindset, and we reclaimed our power. Oh, powerful stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, we've been speaking with Christian De La Huerta, author of Awakening the Soul of Power. You can find his book on Amazon. You can find him at soulfulpower.com. Kristen, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. And again, these are these are big topics or exhausting topics, but this is the way we all move forward. Yeah, thank you so much, Douglas. Thank you for inviting me into your den of discussion. I really, <laughs> I really enjoyed the the connection and the, the the depth and the quality of the conversation. And thank you for having the show. Thank you for having me part of it, and thank you for having it. Period, because I know that that your work and your, your, your willingness to, to do this makes a difference and touches many lives. Thank you. And, and the same to you, my friend. It's been a real pleasure. You have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to the Douglas Robbins Show. To find out more about Douglas and his books, check out douglasrobbinsauthor.com.